So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. We're going to start reading verse 26. And Lord willing, we're going to at least keep up with the first service, and we're going to make it all the way to verse 72. If we don't make it to verse 72 today, you're in for a doozy next week. So we're going to get after it. Let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into the message this morning. Father, thanks for being our Father. Uh, We're going to see Jesus in this passage today. Pray, Abba, Father. We thank you that we have an intimate relationship with you because of what your son Jesus did when he washed us clean of our sins. And I pray if there are any here that are not clean, that have not been washed, that have not experienced your forgiveness and your grace, today would be the day of salvation. And for those of us who know you, Father, I pray the prayer that we looked at last week in Ephesians chapter 3 for us, that we would know your love, we'd know your power, we know the power that's at work in us, the love that surpasses knowledge, that you would speak that love into our lives right now, that we would experience a love that we can't possibly just know in our minds. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Last week was our 10-year anniversary, and we were in that passage of Scripture I was just praying about, in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, the Apostle Paul prays this prayer, that we would know, he kneels before his father, it's a passionate way to pray, and so, you know, Jewish men usually come, and they look to heaven, he falls on his knees, and he starts praying that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge. Think about that for a second. You would know something that you can't possibly know. What he's talking about is that you would experience this love. And he talks about the height, the depth, the length, the width of this love that can't be measured is why he's using that, that language. But think about the, the depth of the love of Christ that pulls us from the depths of hell, the height that it would lift us to heaven, the breadth, that it would, the, the, breadth, the width of the, the love of Christ that goes from nation to nation. There's not a place on this earth that the gospel can't get to. I was just being told about our, in Madagascar that there's a 7,000 people have made decisions for Christ since our, we sent our missionary there. Isn't that amazing? 2,500 of them, yeah, praise the Lord. The missionary said, Grant Waller said, I don't even need to be here anymore. Like, God's just doing a work. Christ's love goes everywhere. The, the length of his love, there's no length he won't go to to reach you in pursuit of you. And it happens according to this power that we saw that the power is at work within us. Amen? And we can be pumped about that. That's like holy excitement maybe you left here with last week. That we know this power. And we said that the prayer, we talked about stuff that God was doing in the last 10 years. We talked about the prayer that we have as we're moving forward into the next 10 years as a church. That we would know this power. That we know this love in an experiential way at a deeper level than we've ever known it before. And that's exciting. And you leave here. But then you know what happens? You have to go out those doors. <laughs> so there's a but. But real life happens. And real life can be like, the crucible of real life. And so what happens is you leave here, and I don't know what you did on Sunday last week after you left here, but maybe you went over to Harris Teeter, and you bought some lunch meat, and you decided to get a soda, and you bought a you know, loaf of bread or whatever it was to make the sandwich together with, or maybe you're gluten-free, so you bought lettuce, so you're going to wrap it up with. I don't know what you're going to do. But you got like three or four items, and you're standing in line at Harris Teeter at the 15 or less items line, you know, the express lane or whatever, 12 or 20 or whatever. It is. But the guy in front of you has got 25 items, and you know how you know that? Because you counted... And that's annoying, not to the point where you're about to lose it. But then he pulls out his coupons. And you're like, you're already in the express lane, man. He starts pulling, weaving through his coupons. They're all outdated. And so he's switching coupons. He's asking for coupons. And then he's, you're thinking, all right, now he's going to pay. And he writes out a checkbook, a paper checkbook. And you're like, who uses those? You know, you're upset. Ask for a membership card. And now you're about to choke the dude, right? But like 10 minutes ago, you were like, holy ambition. I'm going to know the love of Christ and the power of Christ. And now I'm going to kill this guy. Because that's real life. And I don't know what your sin is. The sin of choice. The sin that you naturally default to. Impatience and anger, maybe. Those are ones that I go to. Maybe it's something else for you. Maybe you went to work out. 
and you saw this person, their clothes got your attention and it wasn't your spouse. And so there's a battle that starts in your heart. Or maybe there's an opportunity to seek revenge. And you know that what God wants you to do, that vengeance is his, says the Lord, but, but you've got this opportunity. <laughs> Even the Apostle Paul, who writes the majority of the New Testament, says in Romans chapter 7, there's a battle for our hearts. I don't do what I want to do, but I do the stuff that I don't want to do. And today in our message, we're going to talk about temptation. And we're going to see Jesus tempted beyond anything you and I have ever experienced. So let me ask you this question. What's the most intense moment of temptation you've ever experienced? And what sin was it with? Do you know what the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 4? That Jesus was tempted in every way just as we're tempted, yet was without sin. Sometimes we forget that last part, yet was without sin. But he knew the battle. And sometimes we go to the last part and we think, well, because he never sinned, he doesn't know what it's really like for me. No, he knows and he knows more. Hebrews chapter 12 later says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4, none of us have resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. He has. Amen? Amen. And the battle is real. And so I don't know what your most intense battle is. I know some of you here struggle with alcoholism. Some of you are recovering alcoholics. Some of you are in alcoholism right now. And maybe, maybe you have a bad day at work. And then you find out your ex-wife's getting married. And your kids won't talk to you. And when you get home, it's like you can smell the alcohol. Or maybe it was pornography. And you said, I'm not going to look at these images anymore. But you've got enough stored away in the memory bank. You don't need to look at the images. And it's a battle in your heart. Or maybe you heard me say, you know, Ephesians chapter 4, forgive just as Christ forgave you. But then in your head, you start to hear the lies of the enemy. And you start thinking, but if I forgive them, then they're not going to, that's like letting them get away with it. And they don't have to pay. And you're not, you're ignoring the fact that Jesus paid on the cross. And you're just thinking about, I need to make them pay. And so there's a battle. And it's a bat, and it could be all, and we could go all day with anger and pride and jealousy and temptation to say bad stuff about somebody to make you look better and slander and gossip and envy and covetousness and you wanting other people, you're even pulling in the parking lot, you're like, that's a nice car. I wish I had that car. Oh, yeah, but go, praise Jesus. He's my king. The battle's real. Today's message is going to be called Tempted, Rejected, and Restored. And what we're going to see, and here's an outline of the whole sermon right now, is that we're going to see Jesus tempted as he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we're going to see him rejected with three different types of rejection. I'm going to ask you the question, which rejection do you identify with the most? And Jesus was tempted and rejected, so you and I could be restored. And so we're going to end with some words of hope, but it's going to be tough. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 14, like I said, what's happened here is that Jesus is hours away from the cross at this point. He's just shared the Last Supper with his disciples, the last Passover, the first ever communion. We talked about his broken body and his shed blood. And then in verse 26, it says this, And they went, and when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives, in verse 27. And Jesus said to them, so it's just Jesus and his 11 disciples. Judas is now gone. He says, you will all fall away. So not just Peter, but we're going to get real focused on Peter here in a minute. And then this is going to all tie back together. The last rejection is Peter's rejection. Look at what it says here. You will all fall away, all 11 of you. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Old Testament prophecy. But there's hope. We get a first glimmer of hope in verse 28. But after I am raised up, and so not only is he going to die, he's predicting his resurrection again, I will go before you to Galilee, and you're going to be following me again. You're all going to fall away, he's just said. But you're going to follow me again. There's hope. Look at verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, even though all these losers are going to drop you. Okay, my paraphrase. That's what he's saying, though. Hey, these guys, I don't know about John, I don't know about Philip, I don't know about these guys, but not me. 
And Jesus says, verse 30, truly I tell you, he's so gracious, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, Peter, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then don't miss this. Sometimes we forget this. And they all said the same. Now, Peter gets highlighted later because what Peter, Peter's fall is worse than the rest of them. But they all fall away. And then verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he, Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. It's horrifying what happens here. It's great anguish, some translations say. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Then he gives them a command, remain here and watch. Remember Mark chapter 13? Wake up! Watch what happens. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Verse 37, and he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? So remember the guy just said, I'll go to death with you. He can't stay awake for an hour. Jesus has been praying for one hour here. He probably prays for about three hours in the garden. And then he gives the command, and this command, he noticed that if you've ever struggled with, listen, if you're not fighting sin, by the way, you're losing, you just don't know it. If you're battling sin, look at verse 38. Watch and pray. Watch, be alert, wake up, realize what's happening around you, and pray. Prayer is dependence upon God. Live in dependence upon God. That you may not enter into temptation, verse 38. And then if Peter just got this last proverbial statement, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they didn't know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And we'll pick up there in just a couple minutes. But here what we see is that Jesus tells his disciples, You're going to betray me. You're all going to betray me. Peter says, you know, big honcho. He's the big man, real macho. I will never do that. I will go with you to death. Jesus says then again, hey, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to die me three times. And then he said, I, I'll die. If I have to die, and then they all said the same thing. And Jesus doesn't respond. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't start arguing. No, yes, you will. No, we won't. Yes, you will. No, we... I said the truth. Now I'm going to the next thing. And he takes them all to the garden, a place that Jesus loves to go, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he, he takes 11 of them, but then he grabs three, Peter, James, and John. And we know these three guys are really close, close friends with him. And these are the guys that are with him, the only three guys that get to go into Jairus' house when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. These are the three guys that are there at the transfiguration when his glory shines forth. He takes Peter, James, and John with him, and then he goes into this incredible moment of temptation. Now, Satan's not mentioned here in this passage, but it's like you can feel his presence, and if you think, as you study your Bible, that everything, you know, you're really good at categorizing things and putting things into different compartments, that Jesus was only tempted at the beginning of his ministry when he was in the desert for 40 days and hadn't eaten, and you see these three temptations with Satan, then read the verses closer, because Jesus gets tempted multiple times after this. There's a creepy verse in Luke chapter 4, I'll read it to you, in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, right after those temptations that I was mentioning at the beginning of his ministry, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him and then these last words, until an opportune time. Amen. This is an opportune time. 
right here, hours away from the cross, the weight, there is not a more intense moment in all of human history. To get you to grasp the weight of this, it's not even possible. Because what hangs in the balance? The glory of God. What hangs in the balance is your and my salvation. What he's facing right now is the temptation that the disciples are going to fall to in the next part of this passage. When they're all unfaithful, Jesus is battling to remain faithful. They're afraid, and so they run. And Jesus here, facing fear, the temptation to run. He is tempted, but he overcomes the temptation, and it's interesting how he does it. It's through submission. Jesus overcomes the temptation through submission. And see, we're all submitting all the time. We may not realize that we're submitting to our own will. We're submitting to God's will. We're submitting to the, to the things that happen in our culture, and we're becoming part of the culture and being shaped into that mold. We're submitting to our flesh. We're submitting to the lies of the enemy. We're always submitting to something. It's what we submit to that ultimately determines the outcome. And here, Jesus overcomes temptation through submission. He wants to save their life. You lose your life. He's submitting to not my will, but the Father's will. But before you even get to that moment, try and imagine the weight of the scenario. He takes these guys who he's just had an argument. Hey, you're going to deny. Everything he said has always happened. You're going to deny me. No, we won't. You guys still don't get it. Let's go. Takes him. Takes his three guys. Why does he take those three guys? It doesn't say in the passage. But it seems like he wants some companionship in this. And each time he comes back to them, three times he says, you're going to deny me, Peter. Three times they're sleeping. Oh, no, I'll go with you to death. You can't even stay awake. How does that feel to Jesus? And then we see that Jesus, he says some intense words here. If you go to verse 33, it says he's distressed and troubled. He has great anguish and horror. And if you want to know how bad it is, read verse 34. He was sorrowful in his soul to the point he felt death. We know how intense this moment gets because Luke tells us that he sweats drops of blood while he's praying. Have any of you ever prayed that intensely? <laughs> it's intense prayer. Now, some people have a hard time with what gets said next because he, he's praying if there's another way. If it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And some people see this and they think, well, that, that's like a, like a sign of weakness by Jesus. And you hear these stories of like martyrs that so boldly go and die. And I've told you martyr stories before. Probably my favorite martyr story. And I'll tell you them periodically. We have people that are being martyred today. But it's in the second century. It was by a guy. He was the, the deacon of Vienna. His name is Sanctus. And when he was being tried, because it was illegal basically in the second century to be a Christian in, in Rome. And so when he was being tried, they would ask him questions. What country are you from? What's your name? Where do you, what do you do? All this stuff. And he would only answer the same thing every time. It's four words. I am a Christian. It's illegal to be a Christian. And he says, I am a Christian. He could be imprisoned, tortured, even killed. On the day that he's killed, they ran him through the gauntlet, they tortured him with wild beasts, and then they had him sit in an iron chair that they caught on fire. And his only words, I'm a Christian. What country? I am a Christian. Will you recant? I am a Christian. And it's like, yeah, like holy boldness, courage. Like he's all in. I read a story recently of a woman who, as she was going to, it was over baptism, as she was going to the cross, they screwed her tongue to the top of her mouth so that she wouldn't preach anymore. And her son came to the stake when she was burned and grabbed the screw to remember and so that he'd always be bold. People saw in two. You see these Syrians get their heads cut off and they're crying out to God in the process. And then we come to our master and our savior and we see this incredible moment of vulnerability and you look at it and you're like, well, is this weakness? No, what we're doing is we're getting a glimpse into Jesus' humanity. The temptation was real. 
The struggle, the battle was real. And so what's happening here, though, is not a martyrdom. Jesus is not dying for a cause here. Isn't it just death? Jesus isn't afraid of his death. He's been speaking boldly about his death repeatedly. Multiple times he says in, in chapters 8 through 10, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be betrayed, handed over to the chief priests, elders, teachers of the law, I'll be killed, and on the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. He's already mentioned his resurrection here. He, he knows what's going to happen. It's not the death. It's not the getting his beard torn out. It's not the being beat, Isaiah says, beyond human recognition. It's not being nailed to a cross as an execution instrument. It's not the physical parts of that. Think about what's taking place. Jesus is not just human. He's fully God, which means he's holy, which means he's righteous. And he's about to become sin. We sang about that today. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Which is amazing, and we rejoice in that. So I don't stand before you as a sinner. I stand before you as redeemed, washed in the blood of Christ, holy, righteous, but I still sin. Because there's still a battle here. But Jesus became that sin. So when he looks at the cup, the cup that's mentioned there is a cup of suffering. It's divine wrath is the picture that's there. What he's seeing is what he's about to become. All of your sin. All of my sin. All the sins of the world. Think about the worst sins that you can imagine. And the holy, righteous God is going to become those things. Every rape that's ever happened, Jesus becomes on the cross. Every murder that ever takes place. Why is murder even a sin? We look at it because of each other. We're like, oh, you can't kill another person. It's because you defamed the image of God. Because we're image bearers. All of our sin is actually an attack on the character of God. All of our sin is an attack. We don't love him. We love sin. And so every bad thought that we've had, every lie that we've told, every time that we've hypocritically put forth that we're more spiritual than we are, every time we talk bad about somebody so we can make ourselves look better, all that stuff, he's becoming that on the cross. And we can't possibly feel the weight of that. We can't possibly know the darkness of that. The wickedness of our own sinfulness. But that's why he's saying, if there's any other way. So why did he go? Why did he go through with it? Let me tell you why. And you want, and my hope for you from this message is that you'll know what we talked about last week. The love and the power of Christ. He does it because he loves you. Amen. If you ever doubt that Jesus loves you, go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So many times we live in the garden of the fall where we're just wrestling with our own temptations. Go to where the victory already took place is in the garden of Gethsemane. There's a garden of the fall. There's a garden of victory. Let me tell you what happens in the garden of the fall. The garden of the fall, my will, not your will. The garden of victory, your will, not mine. Brings new light to the idea if you want to save your life, lose it. You want to die to yourself. Why? Because you're killing yourself. Because you get on a path that seems right to you, but in the end it leads to death. In the garden of the fall, God's holding out on you. There's a better way. You go your way. Lies. In the garden of victory, God's got promises for you. Will you trust in the promises? In the garden of the fall, what happens in the garden of the fall? Oh, it's all about here. It's all about now. It's all about me. In the garden of victory, oh, there's a bigger plan. There's a bigger purpose. And actually, your life's not even about you. So which garden? Where are you going to live? Which garden are you going to live in? Because in the garden of victory, he's demonstrating his love for you. I had one of my kids tell me this week that I didn't love them. Uh, what had happened was that we took a toy away from her. And in that moment, it was the worst moment that could possibly happen. So she said, you don't love me. Mom didn't love me. You didn't love me when I was a baby. And I, I like, right, it was bedtime. So I like, got right down on my knees. I was like, who's the first person to kiss you when you came out of your mom's womb? Not you. I was like, you don't remember then. Because I did. And then I just started talking. I said, she's like, no, you don't love me. And just, I'm just going through this stuff. And I said, listen, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you right now. 
And I started going through the track record that I have with it. Hey, if I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't do this. And you wouldn't be sleeping in a bed. Like, <laughs> it's going through this stuff. If you ever doubt the love of Christ in your life, he became your sin. That's, he's wrestling with the divine wrath of God here. And when he says, and when it says here, and Mark tells us, he fell to the ground. And we know that's a passionate prayer. There's an urgency here. Jewish men normally stood looking to heaven. He falls to the ground in prayer, this passionate prayer, as if it were possible that the hour might pass. If there's any other way. But think about who he's praying to. This is a prayer of faith. We talked last week. My God is so big. Now to him who's able. He's going to God who can do the impossible. And he's saying, is there, he's not abandoning redemption. The temptation is to be the king without the cross, just like in Luke chapter 4. But here... He wants you to be redeemed. There's got to be a way. There's got to be another way for you to be redeemed. Another way for you to be reconciled to a holy God. There's got to be another way. God, you can do the impossible. But the answer is no. There's not another way. And so I know with the amount of people that we have coming here today, there are people that will come and be like, I believe the Bible, but I think there's probably multiple ways to get to heaven. Even though you know that Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one, there's no exception. No one comes to the Father except for through me. So Jesus clearly states it. But you think, yeah, but maybe somebody who's never heard the gospel. Maybe they just, they believe in God, but they just use like a different name. Maybe they, they, they've, they're really sincere. Whatever reason you come up with. You think there's got to be another way. Can I ask you this question today? If there was another way, what does it tell us about God that he'd have his son go through this? That he'd have his son become sin? That he'd have his son be nailed to the cross? That he'd pour out his wrath on his son? But there's another option over here. Jesus is saying, if there's any other way, there's not another way. This is the way. It's the only way. What we should be thinking to ourselves is this. There's a way? There's a way. That is a miracle. Because he's holy and he's righteous. He cannot tolerate sin in his presence. If we go to heaven with sin, it's not heaven anymore. There's no sin. There's no crying. There's no pain. So what does he do? How do you do? What would you do? He becomes sin for us. There's a way. We should be, there's a way, like, I'm a sinner. There should be no way. It's impossible. That's right now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. God is so big, he made a way. There's a way. And it's because he loves you that there's a way. And he prays this in the garden. He overcomes temptation through his submission, not my will, but your will, Father. And then he tells them, hey, you want to you fight temptation? Watch, pray. be alert. Be dependent. Watch, pray. They don't. And then he says enough in verse 41. Verse 42. Rise, let us go see. My betrayer is at hand. And now what we're going to see are three different betrayals of Jesus. The first one's a self-serving betrayal by by Judas. The second one's a self-righteous betrayal, rejection by Caiaphas. And the last one's a self-reliant rejection, betrayal by Peter. But we see Peter sprinkled in all through this. And I want you to ask yourself, which one do you most identify with? Because we all betray Jesus. We all reject him. And anytime you choose sin, you're rejecting Jesus. Which one's most likely for you? Which one do you identify with the most? Self-serving, self-righteous, or self-reliant? First, we see the self-serving one in Judas. Look at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Now, if you've been reading Mark, 
you don't need Mark to tell you that Judas is one of the twelve. He's telling us this to highlight how heinous this is. Judas, one of the twelve, with him in a crowd with swords and clubs, which shows that Judas never really understood Jesus. The fact that he's coming with swords and clubs. And Jesus said, no one takes my life, I lay it down. It's time. If, if you read some of the other accounts, you see that Jesus has such total control and power over the situation, even in this moment. And John, he, they, they ask about it, he says, I am, and they fall to the ground. Here, we don't get that detail, but you see that Jesus is in control. They came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders in verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, teacher, and he kissed him. Now Luke gives us a detail here too that Mark doesn't tell us. It's in Luke chapter 22 and verse 48. I put it in here. It says, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you portray the son of man with a kiss? And so you imagine this situation when Judas comes up and they're like cheek to cheek. It's like Judas, Jesus looks at Judas and says, with a kiss, which I believe is another opportunity for Judas to repent. But his heart is too hard. He won't repent. And what we find out from Matthew's account is that what Judas does after this is he feels shame. He feels guilt. He returns the money and then he goes and he kills himself. And you read in the book of Acts, even that didn't go well in Judas' life. You say, well, is that repentance? Well, we know it's not repentance because of what Jesus says about him. That Jesus says it would have been better had he never been born. In other words, that suicide, that was the beginning of his torture. And now it goes on forever. Now, there's some people that sympathize with Judas and they want to argue, well, maybe he's in heaven. And here's what I believe that many of those people is because they can identify with Judas. The same temptations that Judas had. See, Judas throughout his whole life, he looks like a believer. He looks like a, he's close with Jesus. If Judas can do it, you know what the warning is? Any of us could do it. So the question for us is, all is that, am I like Judas? Because what was his problem? Well, he's got a self-serving rejection. We don't know what his intentions were when he originally followed Jesus. I think they were probably sincere. He probably genuinely was following Jesus, but he thought he was going to get something out of it. We don't know if his thought was he was going to get power or fame or reputation, but eventually it turned to money. Because we talked a couple weeks ago about how there's all these different theories about Judas and why and what his thoughts were and his intentions were, but what the scripture clearly tells us is that he was greedy and that he wanted money. And so he was trying to at least get money out of Jesus. We saw in the, in the situation where the woman Mary from Bethany came to anoint him with oil, and the oil was 300 denarii, about $25,000 in our money. And she pours it, it's extravagant worship. She pours it on Jesus' head, she's worshiping Jesus. And somebody says, Mark doesn't tell us who, somebody said, hey, this money could have been given to the poor. But you read John's account, let me read you the verse from John. I didn't read it that week. So in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, but Judas Iscariot, he's the one. One of his disciples, and then John puts in parentheses because he knows now he's, this was written after it happened. He who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We know when we read some of the other accounts that when Judas went to betray Jesus to the chief priests, the teachers, the elders, he, went to the, he asked, how much money can I get? He gets 30 pieces of silver. That's the amount for a slave. Jesus became our sin. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He gave his life as a ransom. 30 pieces of silver for Judas. That's how much it cost for his soul. Why? 
I think what we see in Judas, if we're going to bring it into modern day terms, is uh, like the initial seeds of the prosperity gospel. And so some of us, you know, susceptible to prosperity gospel, some of us susceptible to poverty gospel, neither one's the gospel. You start putting those things in there. Both of them have the idea that you're earning something, by the way. And so there's lots of problems with the prosperity gospel. I don't think most people here probably believe in the prosperity gospel. There might be a few. But the idea behind it is if you believe enough, if you have enough faith, then you'll have more money, then you'll be healthy, and, and then you'll, whatever good things that you wish to be true about you will be true. Healthy, wealthy, wise, whatever the things are that you want, just have it, believe enough, and send money into me as the person who's preaching on TV as I wear my glasses. <laughs> and you'll be healed. Is that not ironic? Whatever. That guy's going to die too, by the way. But the idea, one of the hard parts about the prosperity gospel is you're going to be blessed because of what you do. That's not grace, by the way. If you're earning it, it's not grace. And so you're going to, God's favor in my life, God's blessing in my life, whatever good things I want to happen in my life are based on what I did. And so here's what happens with that as you start to live it out. Just be practical about it and start thinking through this. You don't experience the love of Christ. You're earning what's happening. So what happens when you don't get what you want? You've got a spirit of entitlement. I deserve this. I prayed this morning. I read my Bible this morning. Why aren't you doing the stuff I prayed that you would do? I went and served at the soup kitchen. I did this. I get, no one even knows that I did this. <laughs> you keep telling people, but whatever. You've got a spirit of entitlement. That's not, that's not like a son who's loved, who's redeemed, who's secure in the, situ- in the relationship you have with God. And so, you know, what ends up being is that you obey, you do obey. You are, you're good boys, good girls, all that kind of stuff. But you're doing it for self-serving reasons so that you can get something. Jesus is your ticket to money. Jesus is your ticket to good reputation. Jesus is your ticket to whatever power, whatever things that you're wanting. You're using Jesus. That's rejecting Jesus. So in our obedience to him, we're actually rejecting him because it's self-serving obedience. Do you see it? I wonder for Judas what he thought when he heard messages like, hey, you can't love God and money. You'll you'll love one, you'll hate the other. I think it just went one ear and out the other. I wonder what he thought. I wonder what he thought when he heard Jesus say, they'll praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. When did Judas decide he was out? I think it was John chapter 6. You can read that on your own. We don't know. But there's a point where he realized this guy's not who I thought he was and he's not doing what I want him to do. I'm out. But I'm going to use him in the meantime. What about you? I don't think Judas got it. Statistically, one in 12 of Jesus' closest followers, biblical stat. Statistically, there's some people here that are like a Judas. And we just got to ask ourselves, could it be me? Could it be me? Am I using Jesus? It's self-serving rejection. Verse 47, we get a glimpse of Peter. Peter's is eventually going to, he's going to be the self-reliant one. So you can just start seeing the theme come out. But one of those stood by, drew his sword, and struck the servant. We, he, Mark doesn't tell us it's Peter, but John does. Uh, the servant of the high priest, he cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out against me? What we don't get here too is that Jesus heals the guy's ear. Which I think to myself, what happened to that guy? He got home that night. Hey honey, how was work? Well, this guy tried to cut my head off, got my ear, but I thought Jesus healed it. What are we having? Like, you don't just go on from that, do you? I wonder if that guy ended up being one of the 120 in the book of Acts. Those first disciples. I don't know. I don't know that. But some, that had to change that guy's life. Jesus heals his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against me? Is it like I'm a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. And you didn't seize me. Well, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And then verse 50, not just Peter, and they all 
left. They all fled. And then Mark gives us this little insert. In scholars' debate, they think it's probably Mark that he's talking about himself here. It's like a signature on the book. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth, which would symbolize that he was wealthy. And we know that Mark's wealthy. We read that in the book of Acts. We find that out. And a, book, a little linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. He's showing how urgent this was and how desperate they were. And then what we see is that Caiaphas rejects Jesus, the high priest. And what we have here is self-righteous rejection. So we've had self-serving rejection. Now we've got self-righteous rejection. Is this you? In verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. They came together. And everything about this, and we don't have time to get into all the details of this trial, it's all illegal. The fact that it's happening at night is illegal. You're going to see people bear false testimony. The consequence for bearing false testimony is whatever you said someone did, you received their punishment. We don't see any of that stuff here. How do they all gather together? There's 71 people in the Sanhedrin. We don't know if they all came, but they had to have at least a quorum, 20-some of them. How do they even get these people together, and how do they have all these testimonies ready? It's a trumped-up trial here. And Peter had followed him at a distance, so at least Peter followed right into the courtyard of the high priest. And so what, we're, what Mark's trying to give us a picture of here is that Jesus is going to end up in the upper room with Caiaphas, and Peter's in the lower room. He's in the lower courtyard. And so they're at the same place, and these things are happening simultaneously. And so it's like if you're watching a movie, and they'll put like a split screen where two things are happening at once, and they'll fade into one and come into the other one. They're trying to show you simultaneously these two things are happening. That's what Mark's doing here. And so Peter's following, but he's at a distance, and he's down in the courtyard. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. And so Jesus is in comfort, or Peter's in comfort. And look where Jesus is at, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy the temple that is made with hands. And in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest, he got frustrated. He stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that the, these people testify against you? And he doesn't say anything. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. They're going to bring all these charges. And his life was the testimony. That's why they can't get any of these charges to stick. Verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, it's kind of ironic that this guy's going to lie like crazy to get Jesus killed. But he won't say the name of God because it's irreverent. The hypocrisy is blatant, but he doesn't see it because self-righteousness blinds us. It blinds us to our own sin. And he says here, are you the son of God? Are you the Christ? That's what he's saying. He's trying to be reverent by using the word blessed, but he's saying, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, I am. On the lips of Jesus, if any of you have ever thought, but Jesus never claimed to be God. Look at this verse. It's right here, verse 62. I am. And then he goes on and he adds to it just to emphasize it. And he quotes from Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110. And you'll see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, seated at the right hand of power. And then verse Psalm 110, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so if you've ever wondered, does Jesus claim to be the Son of God? Yes, he does. It's right here. Now, as a reader of Mark, if you've been reading through Mark, and we're in chapter 14 now, if you've been reading since chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 1, says this is the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. So Mark tells us that from the beginning. In chapter 1, we get a demon that says, hey, you're the Holy One of God, on the lips of a demon. God the Father, at his baptism, chapter 1, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
So it's been mentioned multiple times. His disciples say it. And Mark chapter 8, Peter, who's going to deny him in a minute? You are the Christ. When he, he's coming in on the donkey, and they're like, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He doesn't reject any of this, but up until this point, it hasn't been on his lips. And he's saying, yeah, I am the son of God. Now, this is a crucial moment for Caiaphas. He could repent. He could think to himself that maybe he really is the son of God, but look at what he does, verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? There's somebody committing blasphemy in this passage, and it's not Jesus. If you say that he's not the son of God, Caiaphas, that's blasphemy. And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They played a game with him called Blind Man's Bluff. They beat him beyond recognition of a human. And Jesus didn't say a word until he was asked, are you the Christ, the Son of God? I am. Caiaphas, turning point in your life. Opportunity right here to repent. Caiaphas could have thought to himself, maybe when Jesus came into the temple and overturned the tables, that should have got my attention. He could have thought to himself, maybe when he came in on a donkey and they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, it should have got my attention. Maybe the fact that he's fulfilled all these scriptures that I've studied since I was a little kid, Caiaphas, Maybe he really is the son of God. Maybe when he walked on water. Maybe when he healed blind eyes. Maybe when he fed 5,000. Maybe when he claimed to be the bread of life. Maybe when he said he was the light of the world. If any of that stuff would have just struck his heart, then maybe he would have repented. But he doesn't. And do you know why? Because he's self-righteous. We've seen already the fear of the people. Why are they doing this at night? Why are they hiding all this stuff? Because they fear the people. He wants to preserve his own power. He wants to preserve his own position. He's concerned with his reputation. Let me tell you something. If, you, if pride is your main thing, self-righteousness, rejection might be your rejection. Because that's the battle. The fear of people, the fear of man, that's your thing. Maybe self-righteousness is your deal. Because here's what happens. You stop seeing yourself. You're so concerned about what's happening out here. You're trying to control these things. And you stop repenting. Let me tell you, if you're trying to live the Christian life and you're not repenting regularly, you're doing it wrong. And if repentance is easy for you, you're doing that wrong too. If when you hear a sermon, all you think about is who this applies to and your name doesn't come to mind, you might be self-righteous. We go Jeff Foxworthy here, right? You might be self-righteous if. You might be self-righteous if. I was, as I was working on this message, so I don't want to be a hypocrite to you, as I was working on this message, I read an article and a guy was confessing some sinful ways that he interacts with his, his wife. And I thought to myself, I know some people who need to hear this. I'm posting it to social media. <laughs> How ironic that I wasn't thinking of myself and my own self-righteousness. Well, God convicted my heart. So Scott, why don't we deal with your sin? And even if it's not the sin in this article, you got plenty we can deal with. And let me do the work in the lives of those people you're so concerned about being convicted. And, and maybe if I prompt you to, and you really love those people, it's not because you want to get them. It's out of care for them that you'll go to them in love and share with them what you've learned about this sin that you think is affecting their life out of love for them, not out of desire for a zinger on social media. A little convicting. If you don't feel that, if you don't get convicted, you might be self-righteous. And so what do you do? Repent. Wake up. Repent. 
What is repentance? So we've got such weak views of confession and repentance. A lot of people think that confession is like saying I'm sorry to God. Repentance is admitting that you're wrong. If that's your view, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you've been handicapped and living the Christian life. That is not what that, confession means to see your sin the way God sees it. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane if you want to know how he sees it. This cup before him that he's going to become, it's the thing that separates you from him. It's dark, it's dirty, it's awful. Well, my sin's not that bad. It doesn't compare to, it's all an attack on his character. In the Old Testament, he calls our unfaithfulness adultery. It's all adultery against God. Every moment in that, we're choosing that we love something more than we love God. So we're essentially saying we hate God, we love our sin, at least in that moment. So what is repentance? Repentance is not, oh, I'm, I did a bad thing. We all do bad. That's not like earth-shattering revelation, by the way. Repentance is when he transforms your desires. I don't want that anymore. So it ha- you won't even repent apart from the supernatural work of God. Not genuine repentance. It's where you get a disgust for your sin, and you say, I'm turning from that. I don't want, I don't want, I want you. I love how Charles Spurgeon quote de- defines it. He says it like this. I'll read it to you. Repentance is the discovery of the evil of sin. You start to realize how wicked your sin actually is. A mourning, have you ever mourned over sin? A mourning that we've committed it. A resolution to forsake it. And then he goes on. It is, in fact, a change of mind of very deep and practical character, which makes the man or woman love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. So what happens is this supernatural work where your desires actually change. I want my sin but he gives you a distaste for your sin and a, a taste for God. I, hate, I start to hate what I once loved, and I start to love what I once hated, which is him. But in our self-righteousness, oftentimes we don't, oh, no, that didn't apply. That was a good, that was a good point, but I already know that. <laughs> you might be self-righteous. Repent. But the third one, to me, is the scariest one because it's the one I feel most prone to, and it's self-reliant rejection. It's when you try to live the Christian life in your own strength. That's when you depend upon yourself, when you depend upon your own talents, when you depend upon your own gifting, when your own courage, your own moxie, your own whatever it is that you're going to call it. And Peter's been doing it all through this passage. Had he just heeded the proverbial warning, the flesh is weak. But he's been depending on the flesh the whole time. He couldn't even stay, I'll go with you to death. You can't even stay awake, man. He cuts this guy's ear off. I won't deny you, at least he comes, he, he comes a little bit. He's warming himself by the fire. And verse 66 tells us what happens next. Back to that scene. As Peter was below in the courtyard, of one, of the, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And so everything that happens here, by the way, is a contrast between what's happening in the life of Jesus. So Jesus is in the upper room. Peter's in the lower court. Jesus is on trial, and the high priest, a man of high position, is standing there. Peter's down here, a girl, a servant girl. Could there be a less intimidating figure? And Peter's warming himself by the fire. Jesus is being beaten beyond recognition of human. Peter's down here being unfaithful, trusting in lies, trusting in himself. Jesus is being faithful, giving the truth, declaring his identity. Peter won't even identify with him. You can just keep going. There's contrast after contrast. The servant girl comes up, servant girl of the high priest, and seeing Peter warming himself in this comfortable moment, she looked at him and said, you also are with the Nazarene Jesus but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out of the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Remember the prophecy? But Peter's not awake. He didn't even realize what's happening in this moment. Watch and pray. Be awake. Be dependent. No, he's dependent on himself. 
And the servant girl saw him and she began, you don't understand what I'm saying. No, I'll just keep coming after you. It's God's pursuit of Peter, by the way. And began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Verse 71. But he began to invoke, it gets worse every time he denies. He began to invoke a curse on himself and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. If I, what he's saying is this, if I'm lying, may I be cursed by God. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered. Luke tells us that in this moment, his eyes met the eyes of Jesus. The Jesus as he's being beaten, and Peter's denying him, they made eye contact. That's a life-changing moment for Peter, by the way. Because look what happens next. He remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And God broke his heart, and it was an incredible gift to him. Because it leads to his restoration. Now, Peter rejected Jesus. It was worse than just running away. It was worse than what John did, or worse than what Philip did. He gets highlighted. And now let me say this, too. If Peter, the leader of the apostles, can do it, so can you. And so can I. And what Peter was doing is he was trusting in himself. He was trusting in his own flesh. He was trusting in, I got this. I won't deny. I am with you. I've got the courage. I've got the boldest. And he fails, and he fails, and he fails. And three times you're going to deny me, Peter. Three times he falls asleep. Shouldn't that tell you something, Peter? Then he cuts the guy's ear off. He's doing it himself. Then three times he denies him. Then he realizes it. But here's the, here's the words of hope. He weeps. Why is his weeping different than Judas? Because Judas weeps. Judas returns the money. Judas shows he's got shame. He's got guilt. Peter's got shame. Peter's got guilt. But what we see with Peter is we see restoration. We see signs of repentance. We see the evidence of his repentance. It's called the book of Acts. We see when he returns. We saw words of hope back in verse 28. In verse 28, it says, I'm going to go before you in Galilee. In other words, you're going to follow me again. The way that Luke says it in Luke chapter 22, scary verse and awesome verse, the verses 31 and 32. Jesus says to Peter, Satan's asked to have you, to sift you. Uh, so there's conversations about us going on we're not hearing about. And then Jesus says, but I've prayed for you. Oh, that should be words of comfort because we're not going to be able to fight on our own. And he says, and when you return, strengthen your brothers. Hey, when, he's not hearing this nonsense of Peter saying he's not going to turn his back on Jesus. He already knows. He said, but you're going to come back. And I've got a plan for you after you fall too, Peter. That's his restoration. We read about the restoration in John chapter 21. You can go read it on your own, but what ends up happening is after Jesus' resurrection, Peter goes back to fishing. We can debate about why. I think he's going back to his old way of life. He feels like a failure. He's done. He's going back to fishing, and it's not going well, which, by the way, is how it works when you trust in yourself. And then they have breakfast together. I'll speed up the story a little bit. And then after breakfast is done, Jesus looks at Peter and says, uh, do you love me? 